morning again. I am so glad that Brian brought that up about the losing the power thing. That was really one of the most incredible things I have ever experienced in a worship setting. Um, I mean, gosh, we lost power completely that morning. And it, it, like, like Brian said, it was like it was planned. It was like, like, like Trent didn't even miss a beat. He just, like, it was like he knew it was coming. It, it was so, so cool. Um, anyway, good morning, New Hope Community Church. Uh, if you would, please turn with me to the book of First Kings, chapter 3. We are continuing this morning in our series, this is week two of a series uh, we'll call Kingdom Promise. The point of this series is one of action and purpose. The series will look at the life of ancient Israel, but it's also going to point towards uh, a greater kingdom that has been promised in Christ, a promise that is far greater than our current uh, reality here in, in 2020. So in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss how we are called to act not according to the, the kingdom in front of us, but to the kingdom promised to us. You know, um, make no mistake, our actions are in the moment, uh, but we are called to be aware of the world in, in which we find ourselves. As um, Jason Poling, our, our pastor emeritus, is, is, is fond of saying, we're, we're swimming in this pool, that means we're going to have to get wet. But our decisions in the here and now, they, they aren't with a mind to the hardness of this world, but instead to the promise of the consummation of all things. What does that mean? Like Paul says in Romans, we are called uh, to outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, the current reality might tell you to fight for all you can get, right? But King Jesus tells us that everything that is His is already ours. Therefore, we are free. Um, as Paul says in Galatians, um, it is for freedom that we have been set free. We are free to help the poor. We are free to welcome the stranger, the refugee, to stand for the oppressed, to speak for the voiceless. We're free to embrace servant leadership in our work and in our church. We're free to, to clear our calendars, to do nothing but sit in silent prayer. I love that. I love that, that the, the, those words that we, we, we sang just a few minutes ago. Like, it's not about me being heard, Lord. It's, it's about me listening. The world will tell us that we have much to do, much to lose when we do that. When we live into that life of, of, of solitude and sacrificial prayer and follow um, uh, sacrificial love, um, we have much to do, lose when we do that. But, but Jesus tells us to seek first the promised kingdom. And all that other stuff, stuff that's really important, and many of it's really important. Much of it is. But all that stuff will be added later if we just seek first the kingdom promised to us. Last week, we saw one of the first episodes in the Bible of uh, King Solomon. Solomon, who reigned over Israel about 3,000 years ago. Solomon was the son of David. David, the man after God's own heart, right? David, the musician. David, the poet. David, the giant slayer. David the adulterer, David the murderer, David the man who on his deathbed could think of nothing else to say to his son except how to conspire to kill those who would oppose him. That's how 1 Kings opens. But now in chapter 3, 
David is dead, and Solomon is on the throne. And last week, we saw Solomon, in one of his better moments, being asked by God what he desired. And he responded to God with this request for the ability to listen well. He asked for wisdom, an understanding mind, a listening heart. And it's, it's in Solomon's wisdom that we begin to see tastes of this promised kingdom that is available to us via King Jesus. But there's something about these ancient stories that help us point towards the coming kingdom that will come, that has come in Christ and the kingdom life that today we are invited to be a part of, to, to live into as God's people today. So Solomon asks God for an understanding mind, a listening heart, and then he goes before the Ark of the Covenant, makes an, ark, an offering, hosts a great feast for his servants, well done there, and then takes the throne. And that is where our story picks up for today. First Kings chapter 3, this will be verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. I should probably mention that this sermon is rated PG-13. Uh, I should have probably said that before I read that, that verse. Um, but this sermon is rated PG-13. We mentioned this in the, in the Enu Hope. Uh, we are going to deal directly with the, the topics in the text this morning. I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up there. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant, me, slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning <clears throat> to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, <clears throat> the one said, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. <clears throat> but the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Do you have a favorite fictional detective? I mean, the easy answer is Sherlock Holmes. <clears throat> For my birthday um, last month, my family got me a collection of Sherlock Holmes stories, 
And um, in, in the story, A Scandal in Bohemia, Holmes makes this comment to Watson that he must not just see, <clears throat> but observe. He makes this point at, at asking Watson, he says, hey Watson, h- how many steps led up to, to this apartment here? And, and the, the steps that Watson had just walked up to, to get to Holmes' apartment. And Watson says that he had no idea, and Holmes says, quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have not you have you have not observed, and yet you have seen. This is my point, Holmes says. Now I know that there are seventeen steps because I have both seen and observed. I think the true hero of the Sherlock Holmes stories might well have been Watson for having put up with such an insufferable jerk. Uh, the recent masterpiece iteration of Sherlock uh, made that point very well, but but Holmes's point is still well made. Solomon's request to God at Gibeon was for an understanding mind, a listening heart. Solomon didn't just want to see the people or rule over the people. He wanted to to observe them. He wanted to understand them. He wanted to listen to them in such a way that served them because in serving them, he was serving God. And as Solomon said to God, for who is able to govern this you are great people. Lots of great detectives have followed in the footsteps of Sherlock Holmes, Adrian Monk, Bruce Wayne, James Bond, my personal favorite, Jessica Fletcher. Maybe it's the lawyer detectives like Ben Matlock and Perry Mason that you love. And with all of them, their, their goal was never to just stand and point at the person that they thought was the guilty party. It was, it was always to create a circumstance or an environment where the truth was exposed, like, like where the truth was the only thing that stood at the end of their argument. In their description of the events, like everything just kind of fell apart except for the truth. Columbo did this thing where, where he, would, he would ask uh, somebody like a bunch of like seemingly innocent questions, and, and he would say, uh, all right, uh, I think I got everything that I need here, and uh, then he would turn around, and as a viewer, you're thinking, oh no, they're going to get away with it, oh no, and at, right as he was leaving, you know, there's just one thing I don't understand, and the truth would just out. As I researched this story, commonly referred to as the Judgment of Solomon, One of the things that was mentioned is that it inspired and influenced the modern detective story. Versions of this story have been told over and over and over again throughout the centuries. If you sit and watch cartoons long enough, eventually you will see probably some version of this tale, probably with an object of far less uh, precious than, than, than a human child. Granted, life isn't quite so episodic, and the truth rarely is exposed so easily. But I think that if we take the advice of Sherlock Holmes and observe rather than just see, we might be able to to, to understand a bit more of the truth that this story has to offer and just might expose something of the truth of the universal human condition. Solomon has this moment of humility, right, where he requests of God the ability to govern wisely, and then the first detail of the very next story we hear is that two women who were prostitutes 
come before the king. Considering the context of the story, the the contrast of the characters uh, is pretty stark, right? Two two women who were were, uh, essentially on the, the bottom of society come before the king. The Hebrew law is clear that under normal circumstances, some other witness would have been called to help give an account of the situation, and it would have been settled in a, in a lower court. Uh, but did you notice that during the first description the, 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 of events, the, the woman who were, was giving this account, she, she said three times, three times, that they were alone. Both of us gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else in the house. Only we two were in the house. This is a very old story. And of course, life was very difficult, different back then. But, but the information we've been given is that these two women who had recently been, had given birth, the fathers probably weren't even on their radar, and now they were alone. Otherwise, they would have not needed to go to the highest court in the land in order to solve a dispute. The fact that these two women take their dispute before the king tells us that neither of them had anyone else in the world. So they give each, um, so they each give birth and, and, and tragedy strikes, right? When one of the children dies in the middle of the night. And now a woman who is alone in the world suffers a dreadful and embarrassing loss. And the first woman, as the first woman's story goes, the, the second woman suffers the loss and then switches the two children in the middle of the night. So, so either way you look at it, one of these women has just suffered, suffered an incredibly painful, embarrassing loss, and the other has just been betrayed by the only person they had, she had in the world. This is a remarkably dark circumstance for for Solomon to enter into after requesting wisdom from God on how to govern his great people. Although it might kind of be just a small ray of hope that as dark as this story is, the fact that it's the first story we hear after Solomon calls God's people great kind of shows us that this is an example of the struggles of God's great people. It's like, you want to know what it looks like to to govern this, my great people? Have a look at this, Solomon. Look at this circumstance. It's it's not all going to be riches and throne rooms. Sometimes it's going to be the responsibility that you have to, to wisely lead your people who are in a bad situation. Solomon's responsibility now is to get to work and to offer wisdom in the midst of tragedy. One of the things that uh, Bible detectives need to do to pay attention to the details um, that were given. Lots of times there are details that we'd like to have, and, and other times it, it seems like we're given details that, that like aren't necessary to the plot. Um, and we have a little bit of that here. You, you, you see the first woman give her account, and then she accuses her roommate of stealing her live child. And we hear from the second woman, starting in verse 22, 
But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. Then we hear from the first woman again, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And then we hear from Solomon, who wants to make sure that he gets the story straight. And he says, this one says that this is my son and that it is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, it is your son that is dead and mine is the living one. Do you remember that scene in Spaceballs where they... They, they explain the plot, and Rick Moranis looks at the camera and he says, everybody got that? The plot's not that difficult to follow. Why this repetitiveness? One of the most essentially important biblical motifs is the repeated refrain of dead sons and live sons, those who are in and those who are out. Read Genesis up, up to this moment in 1 Kings, and you see it come up again and again and again and again. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, even Joseph and, and his brothers all deal with the complexities of life and death, parents and children, the in and the out, until Jesus comes along and tells this remarkable story about a man who had two sons. So all of a sudden, if you're in Jesus' audience and you're listening to him tell this story, and he goes, I know a man who once had two sons. Oh, okay, I'm paying attention. One son squanders his father's inheritance, essentially saying to the father, you're dead to me. But the father and the prodigal son saw that his son, when he was still a long way off, he ached for recon Reconciliation. Like this woman who, who just had lost her own son, we see a parent who ached for things to be put right. I was talking to this with, with my wife, Amy, and that was, that was her observation on the text that this, this woman, like the father and the prodigal son, she ached for things to be put right. And when the son and the prodigal son faces humility and finally comes home again, Jesus quotes the father as saying, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He wasn't dead. He was always alive, right? It was like he was dead to him. It was like this, this image is coming back, this biblical motif, this biblical theme of, of dead sons and, and live sons comes back again. He was lost and now he's found the idea that these details are again found in the story with Solomon and these two women, they, it turns up the volume in my head on, the, on this motif. It's as if God is reminding me, it's as if God is reminding us that ultimately He desires to deal justly with all humanity. The role of Israel as God's rescue mission to save the world is crucially important at understanding the biblical story. And in Jesus, what we see is Israel's representative Messiah dying for the sins of all humanity in order that righteousness, in order that justice might be attained by all. And then we hear from Solomon, who, if this was a modern detective story, is about to have his Columbo moment. He hears these women out. He makes sure that he has their story straight. And then he says the uh, immortally wise words, bring me a sword. It would be humorous if it wasn't so gruesome. Although we might give Solomon a little bit of credit as it becomes apparent by the end of the tale that Solomon never had any intention on hurting the child. But he does say something that makes the truth rise to the top. 
divide the living child in two and give them both a half. Now, like I said, this story is commonly told. It's, it's the kind of story that, that, that you might have heard before and not even realized that it was in the Bible. But, but here's something that I had always missed before this week. Solomon makes the declaration, the woman whose son, then the woman whose son is alive, begs the king not to kill the child and to give the baby to the other woman. Anything if it means that, that, that her son would be kept alive. And then we hear from the other woman, the second woman, who had just been given an out. And we hear, hear her agree with the king and says, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. And the truth comes to the surface. And that truth, it wasn't just the, the yearning, the compassion that a mother had for her, for her child. It, unfortunately, Solomon's move exposed the bitterness of the second woman. You see, it wasn't just enough for her to win. She, she could have had that. Her opponent had to lose. Now, every respect must be given to a woman who has just lost her child. So we don't need to attack her, but it does make me wonder, personally, if there is any area of my life where it's not just enough for me to win, it's not just enough for me to be right. It's not just enough for me to have my facts correct. Someone else has to lose. We don't see an epilogue. We don't know what happened after they all, 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 these, the, the, they all went home. No more than we know what happened the morning after the prodigal son's feast. For the biblical narrative, the point seems to have been all along that for this particular story that Solomon gave the reputation of godliness and, and wisdom and justice. We'll have more on that as we move throughout the series. But for now, in closing, I'd like for us to ponder a bit on motherhood. Last week, um, in our men's prayer time, our friend T.D. Allen uh, led... Um, us through First Thessalonians 2, and in closing, I'd, I'd invite you to turn there with me. I'd like to look at a passage that, that he led us through last week um, in our prayer time. This is First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at the beginning of the chapter. For you yourselves know, brothers, sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, 
So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you have become very dear to us. When that woman, for a split second, realized that her son's life might be in danger, she stepped in to do whatever she could do, whatever would come to mind, to sacrifice her own needs, to put down the yearning that she had to be with her child that she had just given birth to. She sacrificed her own needs for his benefit so that he might have life. Conversely, the second woman thought that, that if she couldn't have him, no one can. Forgive me, but the kingdom promise that is pregnant in both the judgment of Solomon passage and Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians is the power of sacrificial love, the sacrificial love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of putting to death pride and vanity and, and, and thinking of, of others better than you do yourself. It's, it's obedience even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a Roman cross. That is what it means to seek first God's kingdom and His kingdom promise. That's also what it looks like to be the church. I love to, to remind folks that the cross is not just our instrument of redemption, it is the shape of our mission. The image then that Paul uses to make this case, to say this is what it looks like to live out sacrificial love, the image he uses here is motherhood. What does it look like to be entrusted with the gospel and faithful to his call? It looks like a mother nursing her child and sacrificing so much of herself in order to see that her child might succeed and have life. It's been my honor over the past 17 years to see the remarkable women who have come and have been a part of New Hope Community Church. The women who, who make up our community now and, and the women who've, who've come before have just repeatedly showed us what sacrificial love means. They have poured out themselves to each other in prayer. They have patiently instructed our children. They have called us to justice and to truth. And they have modeled a faithful witness to the gospel for everyone who walks through our doors. They are preachers, they are leaders, they are elders, they are teachers, they are evangelists. And our church's history is as rich as it is in no small part because of the work God has done through the women of our church. I am proud to be a part of a church that is not afraid to learn from and follow strong women of God. I'm a better pastor because of them. I'm a better man because of them. But I'm also proud to be a part of a church that has a history of healing and holistic support. You know, like, like Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, our call is to be a church that not only shares the gospel with others, but shares these ourselves, right? We, we see this, we, we've, saw, we've seen this um, um, with, with, our, with our men's prayer time that I mentioned before, 
I love that we just have this rhythm of, of every Thursday morning, we get on the Zoom, and nobody wants to get up that early, but we just, we get up and, and we just share what God has been doing in our lives, and we share our struggles, we share our bitterness, we share our anger, we share our joy, we share our laughter. And that means to, to share the, not only the gospel, but to share ourselves. It means that when bitterness does affect our hearts, as, as, as common is the case, we, the community, faith, community of faith, we're, we're called to gently admonish or, or to at least simply offer a shoulder for the person to cry on and simply be there for them. Be there with them. Be there for each other with the pain. And then taking a cue from Solomon, we do it with, we do it with an understanding mind. We listen we do it with a listening heart. See, we, we don't want to be just a church that sees each other. We want to be a church that observes each other. We want to be a church that understands each other. We want to be a church that listens to each other, that does life together. So next week, we're going to do a difficult thing. And it's been no easy choice for those of us in leadership to make. Next week, we're going to open our doors for the church to enter this building and worship in person again. It's not a regathering because we've never stopped gathering. We've just used online resources to help us with it. It is, however, a, a re-entry. It is completely reasonable and expected that many, if not most, are, are not quite ready yet to make this step, and um, children, uh, child care uh, won't be offered during the service, and we'll ask folks to wear masks, and the pews will be spaced out, and we have every responsibility and freedom in Christ to embrace caution and safety, but, but the reason we take this step is because we're trusting that God is in it, because as Paul said, being affectionate, affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel, not only the gospel of God, but, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. It's not a flick of a switch. It's going to take time. It's going to take continued patience and prayer and trust that God is leading the way, but we trust that He's in it. We trust that He's guiding us, and we do trust that there is power and wisdom and understanding when the church gathers and listens to each other and then does a work together and points back out into the world for our community and for the sake of this broken world. It's all about being the church. Let me pray for us. Thank you, for, good Father, for, for your faithfulness to New Hope Community Church. Thank you for the, the promise that, that we are living into. Um, we know that this, uh, this call to seek first the kingdom of God, it's, it's not always an easy one. It asks us to, um, to give up things. It costs us something costs us our pride, our vanity, our time, tra talent, and treasure. It, it, 
it will cost us something, but the reason we do it is because we are pouring ourselves, as Paul said, like a, like a mother nursing her child, we are pouring ourselves into the life of this church, into the life of your church. Father, I am so incredibly grateful for the ministry of Trent Coakley. I'm going to, to miss him greatly. And I trust that um, as we close this chapter in New Hope's history, I look forward to turning the page and finding blessings and faithfulness and mercies that are new every morning tomorrow. Lord, we love you, um, and we know you love us. Help us listen to each other this week. Help us to make the phone call. Help us to make the sacrificial play. Help us to put down the things that we need to put down in order to help another person. Give us the time, Lord. Give us the, the patience to be your people. And help us understand that all of this, the strength and whatever courage we can muster, what that, where that comes from is you and your holiness. For you have always desired to use men and women like us, to be your hands and feet, to participate in your gospel to a broken world. It's in the, name, the most holy name of Jesus Christ that I pray all these things.